quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The U.S. Supreme Court just weighed in on Donald Trump's immunity case. What they have to say? The lead starts right now. Special counsel rejected, turned down by the U.S. Supreme Court to hear an immunity dispute to the former president right now, as opposed to later on. The decision, as we learn of new evidence of Trump's alleged efforts to try to overturn the 2020 election, a reported audio tape of him pressuring two election officials in Michigan. Plus, an American hostage killed by Hamas, 73-year-old Gadi Haggai, the news broke this morning, making at least 54 Americans killed by Hamas since and including October 7th. Is President Biden doing enough to bring home those Americans still captive? And an unprecedented number of immigrants coming across the U.S. border as President Biden makes an urgent call to Mexico to help manage the situation. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news that could and will have major legal and political implications when it comes to the 2024 presidential race. The U.S. Supreme Court has just rejected a request by the special counsel, Jack Smith. Smith wanted to have them urgently decide the matter of whether Donald Trump has immunity for the crimes he allegedly committed while he was still president. Instead, the justices want the issue to play out in the lower courts, at least for now. This is a huge win for Donald Trump. It means his federal election subversion trial could be delayed. This ruling comes just hours after a story in the Detroit News, which reviewed recordings that until now we did not know existed of Donald Trump allegedly pressuring local officials in Michigan to not sign the certification of the results of the 2020 election in Wayne County, Michigan. That's the most populous part of the state. We're going to cover every angle of both of these huge developments, starting with CNN's Caitlin Polans. Caitlin, walk us through the U.S. Supreme Court's decision here. Well, Jake, the Justice Department, when they went to the Supreme Court, said this is an issue of great constitutional moment. And what the Supreme Court did today was they said, it's not our moment just yet Mm -hmm. on this. We didn't actually see anything from the court substantively about why they're choosing not to hear this case at this time. Uh, But they're denying they're saying we're not going to weigh in yet on this issue of presidential immunity can a former president be immune from going to trial because he's being prosecuted for some things that had happened while he was in office that's what trump is saying um he should be immune from trial Ultimately here, though, the Supreme Court is very likely watching what happens first at the D.C. Circuit in just a couple weeks. So the D.C. Circuit, that's the intermediary court between the trial court and the Supreme Court. They're scheduled to have oral arguments already. They're already getting briefs in on this. They're looking at the legal arguments and they're going to make a ruling very potentially very quickly in that because they're going to be hearing this case on January 9th. And so once that happens, then it could be going back into other courts like the Supreme Court. Well, and just to be clear, there's no way that the U.S. Supreme Court's not going to weigh in on the merits of the argument, not just the schedule, which is what we're talking about now, but the merits at some point, right? 
Uh, that's to be determined. Even if they, even if they decide decision. to not hear it, they're weighing in on the merits, right? Potentially. I mean, that is going to ha- have to come before them again. Um, it's very likely that Trump's team would ask again because the Trump strategy here is there should be no rush to trial. The courts should do lots of things in looking at this and take all of the time they need because he doesn't want to go to trial in March. And while this question is still in the appeals court, he can't sit for trial. But, you know, when it gets to the, the the Supreme Court again, which is very likely to happen, especially if Trump loses um, at the circuit, they will have to make a decision whether they want to hear this case. And the trial court judge was quite clear previously. She thought this was not even a close call. That yeah. Nobody would give the president a former president immunity. So, Caitlin, stick around because I want to uh, keep you here and bring in CNN's Joan Biskupic and also Marshall Cohen. Joan, are you surprised that the U.S. Supreme Court uh, made this decision, and and was it all nine justices? How, how do we? How, what okay. happened here? First of all, they did not reveal who voted which way, and there were no recorded dissents. But it doesn't mean there weren't some dissents around the table. And uh, unsigned order, one sentence. It was a heavy lift for Jack Smith. I thought he made a very compelling case, but. He needed five votes. Normally, it only takes four votes to grant a case, but to jump over the lower court, he needed uh, the vote of five of these justices. And we know we've got a conservative supermajority on this court. The Trump lawyers really played to some of the Supreme Court justices' fears. They said, first of all, if you come in, you will be acting hastily. Wait for the lower court, but you will also appear partisan. It's Ooh, a, I hate that. They, yes, right, that. right, exactly. Uh, Donald Trump's lawyers stressed that Jack Smith was all about the election year calendar, even though Jack Smith never even talked about the 2024 calendar. But, you know, I think that kind of thing could have resonated with the justices that they might have looked like they were favoring uh, the anti-Trump forces by deciding it. But this is the highest court in the land. This is a, a question that has never been tested at all. Does a former president have immunity from a criminal prosecution for a case, as special counsel Jack Smith said, is all about trying to hold him accountable for actions he took to st- try to stay in office and defy democracy. So I have to say, Jake, the more I looked at the filings, the more I read into them, I thought, I thought we'd definitely get an answer today before the holiday mm. uh, weekend. And I think that this in some ways was very predictable and I just don't want people to think it was unanimous. Um, and Marshall, and, and g- the general strategy of Trump's lawyers, and any lawyer would have the strategy is try to get it dismissed and try to delay. Uh, this certainly seems to fit in with the strategy of delay, delay, delay. Delay, delay, delay. You've been hearing that all day and that's what carried the day here. But look, remember Trump's opening gambit for this case. He wanted this trial to actually happen in 2026, right? He didn't get that. The judge said it for next year, for April. But look, he'll take what he can get. A little delay here, a little postponement there. That's also the strategy he's been pursuing in Florida with the Mar-a-Lago case as well. Look, the underlying concern or fear is that this gets pushed until after the election, right? That's an issue for two reasons. Number one, it deprives the voters of an opportunity to find out if one of the two leading candidates for office is a criminal and criminally attempted to steal millions of votes, to disenfranchise millions of voters, in the words of Jack Smith. And number two, of course, if it is delayed past the election and if Trump wins, he could order the Justice Department to dismiss the case. And that would almost bring us into a constitutional crisis, Jake. And Caitlin, to be clear, if the U.S. Supreme Court eventually does take the case, uh, and if they ultimately decide Trump does have immunity for any criminal prosecution for actions he 
he committed as, as president of the United States. What does that mean for all of the criminal charges Donald Trump is facing? Well, in this context, uh, even if the circuit, right, the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals decides that he has immunity, which they could, um, it would dismiss the case against him. That is what he's asking for. He's not just asking the courts to look at presidential immunity. He is asking to dismiss the case because he should be immune from prosecution. And so that's the question here. This case could get tossed. Now, the other thing to remember here, too, is that if the judges decide uh, or the justices decide that that isn't the case, there isn't presidential immunity and he goes to trial or the Supreme Court decides not to weigh in, there is always the possibility that this could be something resolved later on that he could he could look want to look at later. But this is one of those very rare issues that appeals courts have to figure out for a criminal defendant so that they can have their rights preserved before he goes to trial. There's very few issues he can actually take up to the Supreme Court. Joan, does today's ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court give us any insight into how they might ultimately rule on other matters before them, such as the actual immunity claim uh, or other uh, issues, such as the Colorado Supreme Court uh, case and, and their decision in Colorado that Trump engaged in an insurrection and therefore is ineligible to be president and won't be on their ballots. No, I think that ultimately on the immunity question, even that is its own discrete question of whether a former president could be immune because what, he, what the Supreme Court could ultimately say is that no, he's not, but it could still allow him plenty of defenses when he goes to trial. So however the justices, this is, is not a signal on the core immunity question. And even when they get that, if they rule that he, he must stand trial, there are lots of other ways that he can fight things at every turn. And then the Colorado Supreme Court issue, I think that's a whole nother ballgame because that really is so novel. Uh, I have a feeling that's the, that's the kind of case for the justices that it might be easier for them to uh, reject that rather than in this case, how they kind of postponed for now how they're going to rule. All right. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. Today's move by the U.S. Supreme Court is a big win for Donald Trump. But what does it mean for the appeals process that his team wants to play out? New legal perspective from a high-profile conservative attorney is next. We are back with our breaking news coverage. The U.S. Supreme Court handing Donald Trump something of a win today, rejecting the special counsel's request to urgently decide the issue of presidential immunity. That is, whether Donald Trump has immunity for any alleged crimes he committed while he was president. Joining us now to discuss conservative attorney uh, George Conway, uh, who we should note for full disclosure reasons, is not a particular fan of Donald Trump. No. Um, so what is your reaction to the U.S. Supreme Court decision? Well, I want to issue a correction um, in your, from your opening and, and from something he said at the, la at the end of the last segment, that this was a big win for Donald not, Trump. I don't think it's you don't a think big win. So. I don't think it's a big deal. That's not a kind of correction so much as a disagreement. A disagreement. A, okay. a friendly disagreement. I, I think it's not a big deal because I don't think it's going to affect the schedule that much. And I think it actually shows the um, likely I think it shows the weakness of Donald Trump's immunity claim. And I say that as somebody, as, as Norm Eisen pointed out in the green room to me, I'm the only person in, in the universe who ever won, uh, wrote a brief that won a Supreme Court uh, immunity case for a president against the president. That was against, nine, Bill, nothing. against Bill Clinton, Clinton Paula yes. Jones. Yeah. And so the, and I can go through the how this works. I mean, we've got the D.C. Circuit, who has, which has acted really, really, really fast in prior appeals. They've set this case down for argument on January 9th. I would not be surprised that if we saw a decision from them in a matter of days. Really? And yes. I think I, I, if I were um, that 
if I were on that panel and I were the presiding judge, I'd be writing the opinion now because I just don't think, I just don't think there's anything there to the claims that Trump has been making. I mean, there's just, I mean, I could go into that, but we don't have time. But the, and, and so I think this, this case will be disposed of in the intermediate appellate court by the middle of January, by the third week in January at the latest. And I think at that point, uh, the stay, I mean, if the mandate issues a, a technical word, uh, or they could just, the stay will lift and, and they can immediately start proceeding toward trial uh, in the district court. Now, in that March, point, as it, soon as March? As soon as March. Um, and what will happen at that point is that the onus will shift to Donald Trump and his lawyers to go to the Supreme Court, go to the Circuit Justice, Justice Roberts, or the entire court, and say, stop this, stop this train now. So all of a sudden, you're going to see reversal, and, and Trump's going to say, you've got to move fast, you've got to move fast. And at that point, the Supreme Court, they could stay the case. They could grant certiorari, they could, but they were, they're going to hear the case pretty quickly too. And even if they heard the case and had an argument in February or March, they could still decide this case by April or May or even June, and this case could still get tried in the summer. But there's another possibility that I wouldn't discount, mm -hmm. which is this case is so meritless that the Supreme Court does just decide we're not going to hear it right now. We're going to deny cert. And I know, you know, Jack Meritless Smith, because... Your argument is there's there's no way that what he was doing it, trying to overturn the election right. was in the course Correct. of the Correct, and, and there's no, the, the cases he relies on are civil cases, and that just does not carry on over to immunize a president from committing crimes against the very country that he's sworn to uphold the laws of. But to go back to the point is they could easily just decide, oh, well, he got his, he got his crack in the Court of Appeals. We're not going to hear this case now. And what will happen is he'll still get a chance to go to the Supreme Court, but after he's convicted. And so, you know, like every other con criminal who's convicted in the United States District Court, he can have his arguments heard, um, the immunity argument and any other argument, after he's convicted and sentenced. I want to also ask you about this uh, Michigan story. The Detroit News uh, re re reviewed a tape of a call, uh, part of the tape of a call from November 2020, Trump and Ronna McDaniel uh, from the RNC were, were allegedly, according to this reporter who heard part of the tape, uh, pressuring local officials to not sign the certification of the Wayne County vote. Wayne County, the biggest, most populous county in Michigan. It's where Detroit is. Trump reportedly said on this call, quote, we've got to fight for our country. We can't let these people take our country away from us. And the two Wayne County canvassers went back. And even though they had voted to certify the election, they said, we're not going to sign the certification. Uh, the rest of the board said, it doesn't matter if you're going to sign it. You already voted that way. Who cares? Uh, as far as Michigan is concerned, this wasn't an official disruption of the election because they got there a little too late. Um, but that doesn't mean that Jack Smith might not try to find this tape if it, if it exists and use it to his ends, right? Yeah, I think it shows. I mean, I think it's consistent with the criminal conspiracy and the criminal intent that Jack Smith is going to be trying to prove uh, here in, in the District of Columbia. And I also think it's consistent with the conspiracy that's been alleged against all of the defendants in Fulton County, Georgia. And um, I don't think it necessarily has to be prosecuted itself as a separate crime. Um, and there may be a problem with that because of the fact that, as, as you point out, um, the certifications had already, the, the approval had already been granted. Right. They, had, they no longer, these people no longer had the power to take it back. So that would present, present a legal obstacle. That being said, this was enormously, enormously corrupt. The, the desire to pressure 
uh, state officials who have a sworn duty to uphold the law to violate their oaths if they can. And I mean, you know, it's, it, look, it's, it's of a piece for Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump is, has done that many, many times in many, many situations. And I have to say this as, as a former member of the Republican Party, I mean, for a political party chairman to participate in this, I mean, any normal, decent party would fire a, 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 an official that did what Ronna Romney McDaniel did. You know, this woman who According changed her name for Trump. Um, According to the Detroit News, yeah. A Michigan law enforcement official told me, quote, to try and make this into a crime would be a stretch based on the information in the Detroit News article and assuming more information doesn't come out. None of which means this wasn't unethical, egregious, and grotesque, unquote. All, I, check, check, and check. I totally agree with that. George Conway, always Thank good you. to have your views. Thank you so much, sir. Also today, major development in Israel's war against Hamas, why the U.S. decided to abstain on a U.N. Security Council resolution vote today calling for a temporary ceasefire. Plus, another American killed while in the captivity of the terrorist group Hamas. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life. Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. In our world lead, another American hostage killed by the terrorists of Hamas. Today, the Missing Persons Families Forum confirmed that 73-year-old Gadi Hagai is dead. His body apparently is still in Gaza, while his wife Judy is still believed alive, held captive by Hamas. God's family says he and his wife were on a walk on the morning of October 7th when he was shot and badly wounded. The family says God, who had joint citizenship in the U.S. and Israel, was a gifted man, a father of four, a grandfather of seven. He loved playing wind instruments and will be remembered by his family and friends for his sharp intellect. May his memory be a blessing. Meanwhile, after days of delays, the United Nations Security Council finally got the U.S. to be willing to abstain on a vote instead of veto its Gaza resolution rather than outright veto it. Russia also abstained and the vote ultimately passed 13 to 0. The resolution approved today calls for, quote, urgent and extended humanitarian pauses. An Israeli official tells CNN that the vote was unnecessary but said he was grateful to the U.S. for its efforts. CNN's political and foreign policy analyst Barack Ravid is uh, in a very rainy Tel Aviv for us right now. He's also a 
political and foreign policy reporter with Axios. Barack, so this is, is not something Israel necessarily has to adhere to. What does this vote really mean for Israel as it announces it is actually going to widen its military operation in Gaza today? I think that as we saw since the beginning of this uh, operation, uh, Israeli officials understand that when you want to widen the operation in Gaza and expand it, this means you need to increase humanitarian aid. And we saw it from really from day one of this operation in every phase of this war, when Israel went to a new area, it also agreed to another U.S. request to increase humanitarian aid. And as you can see behind me, it's pouring rain. So when it's pouring rain in Tel Aviv, it's also pouring rain in Gaza. And this means that it's not going to help the humanitarian crisis that is already happening there. And I think that the Israelis are very much aware that they're going to be under growing pressure to give more and more humanitarian aid to Gaza. The U.S. Uh, was also hung up on a U.N.-created monitoring mechanism for aid going into the Gaza Strip. The U.S. thought that adding a layer uh, of the United Nations involvement could, could actually slow down the delivery of this critical assistance. Why would the U.S. be so opposed to this monitoring mechanism? You know, it's, it's sort of a, you know, a strange anecdote, uh, this story with this uh, inspection mechanism, UN inspection mechanism. It was an idea initially that the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, put forward. Uh, but then when the UN started uh, looking at it more seriously and not just at a headline level, it realized that it might uh, not be such a good idea. And eventually, yesterday, and I heard it from U.S. officials, it was the U.N. that came to the U.S. and said, you know what, we know we, we uh, brought up this idea, but actually we don't think it's a good idea anymore, so we need your help to kill it. So hmm. that's what happened with this resolution, and now we'll see some sort of a new, I don't know, coordinator from the U.N. that will try and get more humanitarian aid in, but without some big mechanism. Uh, Barack, uh, today a Gaza border official uh, told CNN that the director on the Gaza side of the Karem Shalom crossing, that's, between, that's a crossing between Israel and Gaza, that the director on the Gaza side was killed in an Israeli airstrike. Now, the, the IDF insists, um, as it almost always does, that it was attacking Hamas militants and any other casualties were inadvertent. Um, that strike reportedly temporarily suspended operations at Karem Shalom. Um, what does this tell us about the, Israel's intentions when it comes to the aid crossing? Uh, I think it tells us again that uh, um, what, we saw, what we see in the last few weeks is that uh, Israel's air campaign, unlike the ground operation, uh, causes much more civilian casualties. Uh, and when uh, Sec uh, Secretary of Defense Austin was here just uh, a few days ago, he told his counterpart, Yoav Gallant, more ground, less air. And, you know, the Israelis are saying that, uh, you know, everyone are, are Hamas operatives or that they're doing everything to avoid uh, casualties. I think we saw, and part of it we saw in this case of the uh, uh, Israeli hostages that were killed, that the Israeli soldiers on the ground, and I think it's the same for the Israeli Air Force, uh, I think it's, um, uh, they're shooting a lot of things, and not always it's Hamas operatives. You have some new reporting in Axios today. Uh, Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa, Democratic Senator Jackie Rosen of Nevada, they send a joint letter to President Biden um, to pressure him into strong-arming Hamas back to the negotiating table for a new 
hostage deal. Uh, tell us more. How did the senators want Biden to strong arm Hamas? Uh, well, they want him to first strong arm Qatar. Uh, and they wrote uh, the president in their letter that uh, Qatar is designated as a major non-NATO uh, ally. U.S. has bases there. There are many, many uh, Qatari interests in America. And it's, I think it's part of what we saw since day one of the war, that Qatar is under huge scrutiny in Congress over its relationship with Hamas. And Senators Ernst and Rosen wrote to the president to tell him, you need to leverage the U.S.-Qatari relations in order to tell the Qataris that if they don't deliver Hamas back to the table for a hostage deal, this will have negative influence on the bilateral relationship with America. The Israeli military officer charged with coordinating aid into Gaza claimed today, quote, there is no food shortage in Gaza, unquote. But Barack, I mean, that's not true. Every day we hear more and more dire warnings about high, widespread hunger. Are you surprised that this IDF official is just blatantly denying something that we all see with our own eyes? Uh, I'm not surprised at all. Uh, it's, uh, I think it's the same line we hear every war in Gaza and this time around too. And, uh, you know, let's just go to what we heard from the, um, you know, Israeli hostages who were held in Gaza, that they basically almost had no food. Uh, and I don't think the situation of the average Gazan was any better. Um, and we know that for a fact. So, you know, the fact that the Israeli military says there's no food shortages in Gaza, well, you know, I, I wouldn't trade uh, with anybody in Gaza right now when it comes to how much food he, ha he has on its table. Yeah, and uh, we should also note some of those hostages noted that they almost died in Israeli airstrikes and they wondered how good Israeli intelligence about their whereabouts was. Um, Barack Ravid in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you so much, as always, for your great reporting. Another crisis, this one at the U.S. border with Mexico, a record number of migrants coming into the United States. The response, as President Biden calls on Mexico for help. International lead, migrant encounters along the U.S.-Mexico border are among the highest ever recorded in U.S. history. A Department of Homeland Security official says that the seven-day average of migrant encounters in December, just December alone, is more than 9,600 a day. That's nearly 2,000 more than what was recorded at the end of November. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez at the White House for us. Oh, well, Priscilla, what's happening at the border right now driving these unprecedented numbers? Jake, there's always multiple reasons why there are surges at the U.S.-Mexico border. In this case, it's happening against the backdrop of record migration across the Western Hemisphere that got worse after the coronavirus pandemic. Then, too, there's transportation networks that will advertise travel to the U.S. southern border and smugglers who spread misinformation. Take all of that together, and this amounts to a worsening situation that officials tell me is bringing the U.S.-Mexico border to a breaking point. As you mentioned in December, the seven-day average was 9,800 migrants. That's over November, where we were at 6,800. And one more point of comparison, in 2019, at the height of that border crisis, encounters only barely reached 
6,000. So this is a logistical challenge for the administration, not only because of the numbers, but because it's happening across the U.S. southern border. So multiple sectors are seeing more and more migrants crossing and the nationalities make it difficult to levy consequences. And so all of that puts the White House in a very difficult situation to try to manage what is a growing issue on the border. Does President Biden, does his administration have any plan to, to curb this massive influx? Officials cite three categories when they're talking about their response to the U.S.-Mexico border. All of them, though, Jake, have their limits. Number one, shoring up resources, simply getting enough personnel, transportation, anything to help manage the border. But the White House supplemental request that included $14 billion for border security remains stalled. Levy consequences, that includes, for example, deportation flights. There's simply not enough because there's not enough flights and because sometimes countries have issue with taking back their nationalities at a certain pace. Then there's leaning on regional partners, but even those partners have limits as to what they can do. And so all of this puts the White House in a position where they're trying to patchwork uh, the situation or the response on the U.S.-Mexico border. So much so, and the situation becoming so dire, that President Biden picked up the phone yesterday and called the Mexican president to place pressure on them to do more in their country. What, what does President Biden want the president of Mexico to do? This really boils down to more enforcement. Historically, the U.S. has leaned on Mexico. Before, when we've seen calls like this, what will happen is uh, Mexican authorities moving migrants further into Mexico, to the south, trying to help alleviate the U.S. southern border and Mexico's northern border. Uh, it also includes keeping migrants from even making it up to the U.S. southern border. Now, senior U.S. officials, including Secretary of State Antony Blinken and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, will be going down to Mexico next week to continue these discussions. But clearly, Jake, this is not the situation the White House wanted to find itself in on the cusp of the 2024 presidential election when immigration and border security are going to be a key issue. All right, Priscilla Alvarez at the White House for us. Thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas. He represents Texas's 23rd congressional district, which covers a large portion of the border with Mexico, including Eagle Pass, where thousands of migrants uh, are still waiting to be processed. Congressman Gonzalez, you, you were in Eagle Pass just the other day talking with, dare I say, desperation about the U.S. going in the wrong direction when it comes to how this migrant surge is, is happening and how it's being handled. Congress isn't going to get back from the holiday break until January 9th. Um, what are you most worried about what could happen before January 9th? Yeah, we're, we're beyond the breaking point. Let me share what's happening on the ground, and then let me share what I believe the president can do today to uh, alleviate this problem. On the ground, the people that live along the border are exa uh, completely exhausted. Uh, imagine if, uh, if you have an, an accident, you dial 911 to go to the emergency room and there's an eight or 10 hour wait, or even worse, they tell you there are no beds. You're gonna have to drive an hour away to another town. That's gonna frustrate you. When there's these large numbers of people that come over, what ends up happening is Border Patrol gets overwhelmed. And what they ended up doing, they have to feed and they have to clothe and house these people. So where do they go? They go to the local grocery store. Just the other day, they bought 8,000 loaves of bread, cheese, food to, to feed these people. Well, guess what happens when you go shopping at that local grocery store? You don't have groceries. And then the other piece is these border communities, they're really one community. Half of it is in Mexico, half of it is in the United States. You have family members that go back and forth. It's the holidays. And right now, the bridge in Eagle Pass is down to one lane. There's two bridges. One, run, one is closed. The other one is down to one lane. I spoke with a passenger the other day. She told me it took her 15 hours 
to get through that. I asked her, why would you go through that? She said, it's because my it's my daughter's birthday. So the frustration is boiling on the border. On the Senate's negotiations on immigration reform, uh, sources tell CNN that some of the current proposed policy changes include turning back migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border without a chance for asylum, so tougher restrictions there, expanding uh, the fast-track deportation procedure so that more undocumented immigrants can be fast-tracked, deported more quickly, and then raising what's called the credible fear standard for asylum seekers. Um, do you support these changes to make it tougher for asylum seekers uh, to get into the United States? I do, and I have been, and others, and I've been having uh, literally daily conversations with senators on both sides of the aisle to come up to a package where they can ultimately not only get 60 votes in the Senate, but also 218 votes in the House. Let me talk about what the president can do today to alleviate this problem ahead of Christmas. The, the, the number one issue is you have to send people back to their country of origin via deportation flights. Right now in the Del Rio sector, there's about 4,000 people coming over a day and zero are getting sent back. In the El Paso sector, which is also in my district, there's about 1,500 people coming over illegally a day and about 100 are getting sent back. So it's a drop in the bucket. You have to turn on these deportation flights. You do them immediately, the numbers go down and they alleviate some stress. Some other things that happen is we, long term is we need to surge immigration judges to the border. This is America. You get your day in, in court. And if you do not qualify for asylum, which nine out of 10 do not, you get sent back to your country of origin via these repatriation flights. You do those type of things, raising the credible fear standard, all that makes sense. But we need we need solutions today not this long-term whose fault it is, and round and round we go. So, I, you know, you and I have talked about this for a long time, and, and <clears throat> obviously there is a crisis at the border, and obviously lawmakers need to do something. We heard Democratic Senator uh, John Fetterman say that his fellow Democrats need to understand there's nothing xenophobic about wanting or having a conversation about securing the border, although he's, you know, he's pretty uh, progressive when it comes to immigration policy. But I wonder, when you hear former President Trump um, talk about how immigrants from South America are, quote, poisoning the blood of this country. Does that make your job more difficult? Because that demonizes an entire group of people just based on their skin color and their heritage, as opposed to just talking about the need for border restrictions so that we can have organized immigration and so that cities and, and localities are not uh, taxed beyond their means. Uh, Jake, this is no longer a person or a party that's circling behind, you know, rhetoric. There are people that are absolutely furious in this country. I would say the bulk of the people are furious at what is happening. And I'll share, I was just in El Paso uh, yesterday. And, and what I saw in El Paso early in the morning were, were dozens of people just loitering around. And while many people are, are fleeing economic persecution, there are also bad actors in this, in, in this group. It's just you don't know who they are. And so what ends up happening is people no longer feel safe. El Paso is one of the safest cities in the United States, and people no longer feel safe. So I'm done with the rhetoric. What, what ends up happening is this open border crisis makes it more difficult for us to have a long-term solution to immigration. I've been a proponent of legal immigration, but when you're when you're just letting everyone in, and ultimately, the people that are trying to do it the right way are the ones getting put to the back of the line. Everybody is frustrated. President Trump is tapping into that frustration, and if, if President Biden doesn't act soon, he will lose to no matter who's on the ballot. Right, but we even have people like former Attorney General Barr 
suggesting that the language President Trump is using is borderline racist because he's talking about poisoning the blood of America with the blood of South Americans, Africans, and Asians. He's not talking about all undocumented immigrants from Russia or from Europe. He's talking about ones with different skin colors. Doesn't that make your job more difficult trying to have a reasonable conversation about this? The, it, the open border crisis makes it more difficult. Now, I'll, I'll drill down a little bit more. My district is 70% Hispanic, and this crisis is in our third year. I'm starting to hear from first and second generation Americans saying, I do not want these people in, in my country. I mean, it, it's absolutely turned upside down. Why? Because when they go to the grocery store, they can't get bread. When they, you know, when they call uh, to go to the hospital, they can't get a bed. They're feeling further and further behind not to mention the high-speed chases that are so dangerous, our schools going into lockdown. So yes, all of it makes it more difficult for someone might, like me, where immigration reform is critical, that I, I want to protect those that are fleeing persecution from across the country. I want to protect those that want to come and live the American dream. I also want to protect the Americans that live here, right. and we deserve to feel safe in our own country. 100%. Republican Congressman Tony Gonzalez of Texas, thank you, sir. If I don't see you, have a Merry Christmas. Feliz Navidad Merry to you. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. What could thank be you. a quick fix to help one of the most pressing issues of our time solved with a big box of hot rocks? You're going to want to stick around to see how this works. In our Earth Matters series, one startup in California believes that rocks, that's right, cheap, durable rocks, could be the answer to avoiding a climate catastrophe. CNN's Bill Weir got a close-up look at this experimental technology. For the first time in human history, the two most affordable forms of energy do not come from burning fossil fuels, wow. but from catching onshore wind or clean, abundant sunlight. Most days in the middle of the day in California, energy is free. Electricity on the wholesale market is worth zero dollars, sometimes even negative dollars, because there's so much solar that's now been installed in California. The same thing is happening in the American wind belt. So while Andrew Ponick was the kind of kid who built solar panels in the garage, he realized that renewables are great for topping off batteries and cars and homes, but the factories, which make everything from steel to baby food, need a lot of energy all the time. The problem is you can't shut down your factory when the sun goes behind a cloud or the wind stops blowing. So with $80 million in investment from backers including Bill Gates, he started a company called Antora to store clean energy with... This is it. A box of rocks. I had a hard time explaining to my kids what nuclear fusion is. <laughs> But this is just a hot rock in a box. Exactly. <laughs> Heated up by either wind or the sun, right? People sometimes feel like they're insulting us by saying, hey, that sounds really simple. And we say, no, that's exactly the point. <laughs> you know, there's not much more here than a steel box with insulation inside of that and some carbon blocks inside of that. That's it. And Tor's batteries heat up blocks of carbon like this until they glow like little suns for a full day. What's right in the box right now is about 1,600 degrees Celsius. So this is hotter than the melting point of steel, and it's just a couple feet inside that shell. By cracking open the box, Andrew says they can release enough heat to make a factory steam and enough light to generate electricity as it glows into a special kind of solar panel. And while the box is tricky to build, the rocks are cheap and abundant. There's plenty of production of this. Even just 1% of the current production of carbon blocks would be enough to make terawatt hours of batteries, which would be enough to power you know, the United States. 
A competing company called Rondo uses even cheaper bricks in their thermal batteries to create megawatts of power for a single factory without the need for a grid upgrade, which means places with a lot of sun and wind could become magnets for new industry. Both companies were present at COP28 in Dubai, where big oil had a big presence. But Andrew came back convinced that clean, simple ideas are the future. The transition is inevitable. It's going to happen. And actually, if you talk behind closed doors to most of the people in the fossil fuel industry, they'll say the same thing. They understand that. Yeah. Uh, but I'm confident that we're going to be able to take that huge tool that we have in solar and wind and displace fossil fuels faster even than most people think. Really? Yeah. Why? Why? What gives you that faith? Uh, it, it's really because of the technologies that are coming down the pipe. If you'd asked me five or ten years ago, I would have said, I'm not sure we have everything we need to decarbonize. Uh, but today, we have the tools we need. We just need to deploy them. Uh, thanks to Bill Weir for that report. And Bill will join me Sunday for a special State of the Union in which we focus entirely on the climate change crisis. That's Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern, Eastern and noon, only on CNN. Coming up, new CNN analysis into Israel's military operation in Gaza, finding that hundreds of 2,000-pound so-called dumb bombs have been dropped on the densely populated area, the deadly destruction by these weapons of war, and why next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new reaction after the rejection from the U.S. Supreme Court denying the request from Special Counsel Jack Smith to settle this dispute over whether Donald Trump has immunity from prosecution because he committed these acts, alleged acts, as president. This is in his federal election subversion case. I'm going to talk to a former Trump attorney coming up. Plus, new warnings about Ozempic, one of the most popular drugs out there for diabetes and, of course, for weight loss. What you need to know about the fakes, the counterfeits leaked into the market. Leading this hour, however, Israel is indicating today that it plans to widen its military operation against Hamas in Gaza, ordering residents in the central part of the Strip to find safety in shelters. Let's go right to CNN's Jeremy Diamond, who's on the ground for us in Tel Aviv, Israel. Jeremy, the UN Security Council finally passed this resolution. It's been watered down a bit. It calls for, quote, extended humanitarian pauses to ensure that aid gets into Gaza. You went to the Kerem Shalom crossing today. That's one of the few crossings between uh, Gaza and Israel. Uh, what did you see there? What's going on there? Well, Jake, even before the United Nations passed this resolution today, the U.S. was already bringing enormous pressure to bear on Israel to allow the entry of more aid into Gaza and to allow it directly from Israel into Gaza. And over the last week, about 300 plus trucks have been able to go directly from Israel, get security inspections at this Karim Shalom crossing and go into Gaza. We saw dozens of those trucks making that very journey today, uh, but still it is simply not enough to meet the enormous humanitarian need that exists in Gaza right now. Uh, the UN World Food Program has warned that about half of Gaza's population is experiencing severe or extreme 
hunger. And yet today, I spoke with Colonel Moshe Tetro, who is in charge for the Israeli military of coordinating the delivery of that aid into Gaza. And he looked at us with a straight face and he said that there is no food shortage in Gaza right now. I pressed him on that. Listen. Like I've told you, there are tens of trucks loaded with food entering the Gaza Strip every day. There are thousands of tons of food entering the Gaza Strip every day. But why would you say that there is no food shortage in Gaza? Doesn't that suggest that you're disconnected with the reality that the people are experiencing there? Like I've told you in the briefing, we are doing a daily uh, analysis of the situation with the international organization and with other parties and other sectors like the, like the private, private sector. And now this resolution passed by the United Nations calls for appointing a senior U.N. official to help coordinate the delivery of this aid. And the U.S., even though they abstained, hailed the resolution and said it will help to uh, expedite the delivery of that much-needed aid into Gaza. I don't know why they think that doublespeak is, is, pos is a positive thing for them to do. But moving on, um, Jeremy, today we learned uh, that an American citizen uh, who had been kidnapped by Hamas uh, has been killed. He's been confirmed dead. 73-year-old Gad Haggai was a dual Arab and Israel, I mean, dual American and Israeli citizen. He was a, a grandfather. He was a member of kibbutz near Oz. He was abducted with his wife on October 7th. Uh, moments ago, uh, President uh, Biden uh, released a statement about this latest American killed by Hamas. Uh, uh, tell us about it. Yeah, this is the statement from the president. Jill and I are heartbroken by the news that American God guy is now believed to have been killed by Hamas on October 7th. Says we continue to pray for the well-being and safe return of his wife, Judy, their daughter, joins by phone my meeting with the families of hostages last week. Those families bravely shared with me their harrowing or ordeal that they have endured over the past months as they await news of their loved ones. It's intolerable. And he says, I reaffirm the pledge we have made to all the families of those still held hostage. We will not stop working to bring them home. Of course, God Haggai's body is still being held hostage in Gaza, even though he has now passed away. And that's because Hamas is believed to be holding about at least 20 uh, dead Israeli hostages uh, as bargaining chips still. Uh, but these negotiations, Jake, are going nowhere fast. Uh, Israel has put a couple of proposals on the table, clearly looking to try and find a way to bring hostages home to provide a week-long pause in the fighting. But Hamas, for its part, says it won't negotiate as long as the hostilities continue. Jake. Yeah, Hamas still holds uh, Americans hostage. And by our count, uh, God Haggai uh, makes at least the 54th American that Hamas has killed uh, since October 7th, uh, including October 7th. Uh, seen as Jeremy Diamond in Tel Aviv, thanks. A bombardment not seen since Vietnam. That's how one former U.S. defense official and U.N. war crimes investigator describes Israel's first months of strikes against Hamas in Gaza. CNN's Nima Elbagar and her team analyzed the craters left by the 2,000-pound bombs, finding the, the sheer size and destruction, likely tracing back to munitions manufactured by the United States. She brings us this report. We must warn our viewers, what you're going to see contains some disturbing images. Even at a distance, the devastation wrought on Gaza is unmistakable. We are a few hundred meters here from the boundary with Gaza, but even here, you get a sense of the degree of the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, the sheer intensity and scale. This is what that looks like up close. Scenes of destruction have become all too familiar. Here, 
the aftermath of another Israeli airstrike. This time in late October at the Jabalia refugee camp, one of the most densely populated residential areas in Gaza. The bomb that caused this damage is a 2,000-pound bomb, likely made in the USA, dropped by the Israeli Air Force, at least four times as powerful as the vast majority of the bombs used by the US in its fight against ISIS. In densely populated Gaza, the human cost is incomparable. Whole families wiped out in one blow. Jabalia refugee camp is one of the epicenters of Israel's bombing campaign. To understand the complete picture and scale of the destruction in Gaza, you need to look from above. In coordination with artificial intelligence company Synthetic, CNN was able to locate over 1,900 crises left behind by bombardment in just the first month of the war. Using AI, we analyzed the diameter of these crises over 500 of which were greater than 40 feet in diameter, consistent with American-made 2,000-pound bombs used by the Israeli Air Force. Our analysis covers the one-month period to November 6th, in which a staggering 10,000 people are believed to have died. The U.S.'s most senior Middle East diplomat testified on November 9th the number of dead could be even higher. In uh, this period of, of conflict um, and conditions of of war, um, it is very difficult for any of us to assess what the what the rate of casualties are. We think they're very high, frankly, and it could be that they're even higher than are being cited. Yet the U.S. continues to back Israel's bombardment. So why is the death toll so staggering? Because it's not just about the point of impact. This is a crater caused by a 2,000-pound bomb. The potential kill zone from that crater can spread up to 365 meters. That's 1,200 feet, an area equivalent to roughly 60 soccer pitches or around 90 American football fields. The IDF told CNN, in stark contrast to Hamas's intentional attacks on Israeli men, women and children, the IDF follows international law and takes feasible precautions to mitigate civilian harm. But is that true? This is just north of the Shati refugee camp along the main coastal road. When you go in closer, you can see in just this small neighborhood at least nine craters consistent with 2,000-pound bombs, which means the potential kill zone could encompass this entire area. CNN and Synthetics' analysis of the devastation of Gaza shows extensive bombardment. In an area this densely populated and using these bombs, it's inherently indiscriminate. And the human cost continues to soar, surpassing 20,000. Many of the dead still unburied, still under the rubble, with no end in sight. Ni'mal Baghir, CNN, Storot. And joining me now to discuss is a senior advisor to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Mark Regev. Mark, thank you so much for being here. So. You heard the report, um, CNN reporting that in the first month of the war against Hamas, Israel dropped hundreds of 2,000-pound bombs on Gaza. Um, is that going to be the plan going forward still, using these giant so-called dumb bombs that, that are not as precision as other munitions the IDF has? I would reject any allegation that Israel is somehow acting uh, in a way that, that would be considered against the rules of armed conflict 
Um, I've been in meetings with U.S. officials where we've demonstrated, we've shown uh, our rigorous process of target target selection. We don't indiscriminately bomb. We it's always based on intelligence. Uh, we always look at issues like collateral damage. We always look at the sort of ordinance that is right for the specific target. There is a process you have to tick all the boxes until the decision is finally taken to use that sort of ordinance. And I was told that a few weeks ago when that Brigadier General from the IDF briefed members of Congress, that when members of Congress asked about the use of these so-called dumb bombs, uh, not precision munitions, that the general said that they were needed uh, to go after the tunnels where Hamas is. Is that the reason? I don't want to go into operational reasons, but I can say this. You had a, a previous report which, which, uh, about the use of so-called dumb bombs, uh, and then you had in the report you quoted a senior U.S. official who said the way the tactics that the Israeli Air Force had adopted in using these weapons actually made them precision because we used uh, uh, the way we launched the weapons was close-up dive-bombing type tactics. Once again, we don't bomb indiscriminately. It's not correct. Um, last week at a White House Hanukkah reception, as you know, President Biden uh, discussed a conversation he had with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and President Biden used the term indiscriminate bombing to describe uh, why he thinks Israel has eroding global support. Um, and then the response from Netanyahu was, according to President Biden, quote, well, you carpet bomb Germany, you drop the atom bomb, a lot of civilians died unquote. Um, what is the response? You say that you're not bombing indiscriminately. President Biden seems to think you are. And, and the pushback, uh, according to Biden from Netanyahu, was to discuss how the U.S. bombed Dresden and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which I, I'm not sure that's a, a comparison that you want to invite. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to go into what might have been said in a conversation on the phone between the president and the prime minister. Those conversations obviously have to remain confidential. But I can say this. I, I think when we compare the use of weapons by the Israeli military and you compare that with other Western militaries in similar uh, situations, uh, uh, when, when, let's say, America or your allies have been fighting terrorists in urban areas, I think the efforts that we uh, uh, utilize to safeguard civilian populations, giving them warning messages, asking them to leave areas of combat, uh, phone calls, dropping leaflets, uh, actually specifying now which areas they can go to, I think we go above and beyond uh, many others in our efforts to safeguard the civilian population. The numbers uh, that we've seen, though, in terms of the estimated number of deaths of Palestinians, even if you assume that, that, uh, that 50% of them are Hamas uh, militants or terrorists, which I'm not sure anybody is making that argument quite, but are that, that Israel has killed more civilians in the last two and a half months than the United States did in the entire first year of the war in Iraq uh, against Saddam Hussein. So as, as Secretary Blinken just said, uh, uh, what was it, two days ago, he said, well, that's because of Hamas's strategy uh, and people should be, be, be open about this. It's Hamas that is deliberately using gas and civilians as a shield for its, its terror machine. It's Hamas that embeds itself under schools. It's Hamas that embeds itself under mosques, under UN facilities, under residential neighborhoods, under hospitals. Uh, they have, through their strategy, deliberately 
endangered uh, uh, Gaza civilians. And we are trying to make a maximum effort in, 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 our, in our war against Hamas to try to get civilians out of, the hosti- uh, out of the crossfire. But it's very, very, very difficult. What's your reaction to the resolution passed today by the United Nations Security Council that, causes, that calls for a, a pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas so as to get more aid in to help the Palestinian people in Gaza? Well, first, I want to thank the United States of America, whose diplomatic support is very much appreciated here in Jerusalem. Without the threat of an American veto, we would have had another one-sided, terrible resolution uh, like the one that was proposed a, a few weeks ago, which only gave Hamas a lifeline. Uh, and your viewers need to understand, Jake, that, that a resolution that calls for a, a unilateral, a, a, a immediate, unconditional ceasefire is, is just going to keep Hamas in power. And if Hamas stays in power, they've said so. You've reported this. They've said so that they would do the October 7th attack again and again and again. So people, maybe some people of goodwill think, oh, this is good. We're going to end the bloodshed. No, this is a recipe for further bloodshed down the road. There is no peace with Hamas. Hamas says so openly. They say they believe in permanent war with Israel. And any resolution that gives a lifeline to Hamas has to be opposed. And I thank the United States government. And I think all of Israel thanks the United States government for, for making sure that such a resolution was not passed. Mark Regev, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it. My pleasure. The big news here in Washington, D.C., the U.S. Supreme Court denied a major request by special counsel Jack Smith in his presidential immunity dispute with Donald Trump. How might this play out in the 2024 race as the Republican frontrunner scores a win? Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, former President Donald Trump in an interview earlier today was given a chance to clear up any confusion about his Hitler echoing comments in which he said that immigrants from South America, Africa and Asia, not Europe, just South America, Africa and Asia, are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country. Here's how that went. The most controversial thing you've said is the illegal immigrants are poisoning our blood. Will you explain again? What do you mean by that? Exactly what I said. He keeps getting these opportunities from conservative anchors who want him to be normal, and he keeps refusing them. Sean Hannity did that also. Hmm. He cleared it up. He meant exactly what he said. This time, actually, Trump even took the rhetoric a step further. They have people coming in. We don't even know what the language is that they speak. We have nobody that speaks the language. And they're loading up our classes. We're loading up our classes, our school classes, with children that don't speak the language. They don't speak our language. And nobody knows what's going on. Now we, uh, we are poisoning our country. We're poisoning the blood of our country. So it's not just poisoning the blood of our country. Let's discuss this with the panel now. He's actually now citing immigrant children as an example of poisoning the blood of the country. Jake, cut to the chase. Trump means what he said. And the scary thing is this works. This plays with the base. This is what the base wants to hear. I used to be a part of that base, Jake. This issue of immigration and people flooding over the border, nothing winds up the base more than that. Trump knows what he's doing. And you saw this uh, poll in the Des Moines Register suggesting Mm -hmm. that a plurality of Iowa Republican caucus goers Actually, that that rhetoric, poisoning the blood, makes them more likely to vote for Trump 
as opposed to less likely? I've been covering uh, immigration policy since the Trump administration, and this is exactly from the playbook that we saw in 2020, often diving into, let's just be honest, xenophobic language yeah. when it comes to trying to galvanize his base. And, and you're right, it has shown that it's effective according to polls. Uh, it is worth saying In that a Republican primary. In a Republican yeah. primary. I was yes. just about to say, it's yeah. worth mentioning that when this was tried, when when language and focus on caravans and the border was tried in the, uh, before the 2018 midterms, they actually did not get the results. Republicans did not get the results that they wanted, as well as in the last presidential election. But you're going to continue to hear this language. And to be clear, the policy proposals that the former president has already proposed, if he was to be elected again, are even more aggressive than when he was in office. You're talking about mass deportations, scaling up detention once again, as well as even more travel bans that we saw previously. In 2018, when he used that caravan scare tactic before, <clears throat> um, we should note, yes, it was not electorally successful. Right. There was the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. Right. Remember, part of the great replacement theory is that Jews are funding the replacement of white people in the country with these brown and black uh, immigrants. The, uh, the, so the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in 2018, the El Paso Walmart right. shooting in which uh, dozens of Latinos were killed. Um, so maybe it does sound electorally successful. I also have talked to lots of national security experts who worry this rhetoric is part of what is behind, not necessarily directly from Donald Trump, but in general, mm -hmm. the rhetoric is what is fueling these mass shootings of minorities. When you have a platform like Donald Trump has and you use it in such an irresponsible way to target individuals, I, I, I know we talk politics, but there's a part of me that is, it's bigger than politics because at the end of the day, people's lives are at risk. When you see hate crimes for Asian Americans go up, when he says condescending things about the coronavirus because it started in China. When you hear him call African immigrants, a-hole countries and s-hole countries, how people treat African immigrants. When you said in 2016 that you called Mexicans rapists. My question though is why then is he still the front runner for the Republican Be Party? What does that say about our country? Well, that, that, and so yeah. many people for so long have said, oh, you know, we're making progress. This is why so many minority and groups of color are, are waving a flag saying, wake up, folks, we're in real danger, not just for our democracy, but for individual safety. But, but, but he's making inroads in polls with minorities, Donald Trump and oh, the Republican absolutely. Party. Absolutely. I think this plays with a lot of working class Americans. Look, not in Trump's defense, but this issue of the border is a vulnerability for Democrats. Of course, Trump absolutely. takes it absolutely. to We were discovering ugly, it yeah. earlier in the show, of course. Trump takes it to an ugly, bigoted place but this is an issue. I want to play uh, some sound uh, that was raised our eyebrows. It's a, on a slightly lighter note. A Republican Congressman Tim Burchett of Tennessee uh, saying that some Republican members of Congress have been compromised uh, by Russian hookers and drugs and are being blackmailed to switch their votes on bills. Take a listen. This is how it works. You're visiting, you're out of the country or out of town or you're in a motel or bar at, in D.C. and some whatever you're you're into women or men or whatever comes up and they're very attractive and they're laughing at your jokes and, and they, and you're buying them a drink. Next thing you know, you're in the motel room with them naked. And next thing you know, you know, you're about to make a key vote and what happens? Some well-dressed person comes up and whispers in your ear, Hey man, there's tapes out on you. Were you in a motel room on whatever with whoever? And then you're like, uh Oh, and said, you really ought not be voting for this thing. So, <laughs> I've never heard of that happening. I, I'm sure it, it's possible. You were a member of Congress. 
What's your take on this? Have you ever heard of that happening? Spotlight. Not on TV, in, in real life. No, naked. I love the way he <laughs> said naked. Okay, but you, no. You, 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 no. Yes, no. Okay, have you ever heard of that happening? No. Well, I really appreciated the line in the Daily Beast article about this where they said it's unclear <laughs> if this is firsthand experience or if it was just theorizing. No, no. Congressman sure. Burchett is a, is a, is a God-fearing God, man. He's yeah. talking about other folks. I'm just, I'd love more information. We try to get him on the show. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're waiting. This sounds like some good scoops yeah. to come from a follow-up on that. Zolan Kano Young, Ashley Allison, Joe Walsh, thanks, and Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to all of you. This just announced back-to-back -back Republican presidential town halls. On Thursday, January 4th, they begin, first up, Caitlin Collins with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis at 9 p.m. Eastern. And then Aaron Burnett moderating a town hall with former Ambassador Nikki Haley at 10 Eastern. That's Thursday, January 4th, right here on CNN. Caitlin and Aaron doing a great job, I already know. An attorney who worked on Donald Trump's legal team is going to join me next. His reaction to the news today from the U.S. Supreme Court. The court rejected a request to expedite this dispute over presidential immunity. Stay with us. Back to our law and justice lead, the United States Supreme Court earlier today rejected a request from Special Counsel Smith. He, Smith wanted to fast track uh, the debate uh, of, of whether Donald Trump has immunity from federal prosecution for alleged crimes he committed while he was president. Uh, and so this ruling will likely delay Trump's federal election subversion trial. Jim Trustee is here. He resigned from Donald Trump's legal team earlier this year. He previously represented Trump in the federal classified documents case. So uh, just to get your thoughts on this, um, now that the Supreme Court has refused to fast track the arguments, could this uh, give Trump's legal team a leg up and how so? Well, I don't know if it gives a leg up substantively. We don't know how they're going to rule in terms of the immunity itself, but it certainly jeopardizes the March trial date. And I think that's really the story here. You had a prosecutor in a very unprecedented position saying we have to have a speedy trial. A speedy trial right is a defendant's right. It's very unheard of for a federal prosecutor in any district, and I was a federal prosecutor for 27 years, to, uh, to announce that they've got this specific speedy trial interest where it has to be tried by date X. That was weird territory. It did not pass the sniff test when it came to the basis for an expedition for the Supreme Court, and I think they made the right ruling. So the question of immunity, as you note, is the larger issue, not the, not the schedule. It's going to probably end up at the U.S. Supreme Court regardless. Um, do you have any idea of what they might do when they review the case? No, I mean, look, I, you know, a lot of lawyers would go, would, would go poor betting what's on that. What's your guess? What's your guess? Well, my guess is that the first stop is that the Court of Appeals will probably say there's no immunity at all. Um, I'm not particularly struck by the double jeopardy argument. That one seems like it's a little bit of a stretch to say that the legal impact of an impeachment process uh, has any real carry on That's this Trump's issue. argument that it's like... It's kind of, a, it looks like a secondary yeah. argument. But I think the primary argument's interesting because, you know, you could see the Supreme Court getting to it and deciding to have a bit of a carve-out approach that if the, if the activity of the president at the time was really connected to core functions, maybe that's immunized. You know, you wouldn't want to have it where a president could have a drunk driving incident or could go beat up Jake Tapper for no real reason mm. uh, and, and say that they're immunized. So there could be a little division of whether it's something that's really in the wheelhouse of being the president versus being a frolic and detour, as they call it legally. But I have no idea. I think, you know, it's new territory. We have no way of really knowing uh, whether this is going to be something that splits on, on philosophical lines or not. And we'll have to wait and see for a while, it looks like. Of course, we also have to wait to see if the U.S. Supreme Court is going to take any action when it comes to Donald Trump's uh, anticipated appeal of the ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court. The Colorado Supreme Court earlier this week ruled that Donald Trump cannot appeal, appear rather on their ballots because they judged him to have 
uh, participated in insurrection and according to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution is therefore ineligible. Uh, do you think that Trump's legal team will, well, first of all, I assume you think they're going to appeal it. Sure. And, and how yeah. do you think they're going to approach that appeal and do you think they'll be successful? Well, you know, it's a petition for certiorari for the Supreme Court and the percentages in general are pretty low about the Supreme Court taking these cases. I think they'll take it. I think this is an outrage. Because it's a state Supreme Court decision. For a variety of reasons. You've got yeah. a state Supreme Court ruling on something that could be viewed as a strictly federal question. You've got all these issues about interpreting uh, Article 3 of the 14th Amendment, whether it even applies to the president and the district court, although they were no friend of President Trump, they said that's a problem. Here. Right. They said he committed an insurrection, but he's not covered by the 14th Amendment. Right. Yeah. Right. It's not the, it's not the you know, sexiest kind of uh, legal reasoning, perhaps, but there's something to it. And that's I think it was uh, Ty Cobb who's no big friend of President Trump at this point, was announcing this is a 9-0 winner when it goes to the Supreme Court. So there's kind of foundational or procedural issues that they could hang their hat on, and that's probably safer territory for getting like an 8-1, 9-0 opinion out of the Supreme Court if they rule on more of a procedural or foundational basis. But I gotta tell you, in terms of the merits of this thing, the, the expedited trial that he had included basically embracing the bulk of the J6 committee as substantive evidence of insurrection. I think that's a horrible precedent. And then they also relied heavily on a sociology professor who was essentially saying that he is the Trump dog whistle whisperer. Mm -hmm. That although Trump said things like, go peaceful and patriotically, it really meant unpatriotically and violently. And the thought that any court is deciding something this fundamentally important with that kind of psychobabble is really an extraordinary moment. So who, in your view, is the right uh, one to judge whether or not Donald Trump did uh, participate in an insurrection. Well, there's a real easy out here, which is if he is convicted, that could be the obvious basis. But Jack Smith's for, not trying him for uh, I understand. inciting well, an insurrection. You know, he, he's trying an insurrection case, but not calling it insurrection. If you right. look at the most recent pleading, it's like we're going to put everything we can about President Trump disliking uh, you know, electoral results. But at the end of the day, that seems to be a more solid ground, and that could be where the Supreme Court goes as one of these foundational issues that we're not going to have many trials on insurrection. You're either convicted of it or you're not. And that would be a, obviously a huge win for the president if they go that way. All right, Jim Trusty, thank you so much. Merry Christmas and All Happy right. New Year to you, you too. and your family. Appreciate it. A warning to millions who take a popular drug used for diabetes and for weight loss. What we're learning about counterfeits of the drug also on the market. This is about Ozempic. You're going to want to listen in. Stay with us. If you use Ozempic either for type 2 diabetes or for weight loss, then you need to listen to this because the U.S. Food and Drug Administration is warning about counterfeit versions of Ozempic that are circulating throughout the U.S. CNN's Jacqueline Howard's here. Jacqueline, how can people tell if they have fake Ozempic? Yeah, Jake. Well, the FDA said it has seized thousands of units of these fake products. And the way you can tell that it's counterfeit, there are some subtle differences in the packaging, but it really comes down to the lot number and the serial number. So the FDA warned that uh, products that are labeled lot number NAR0074, as you see on that screen, and they have that serial number that you see on the screen, those should not be used or distributed. So this is an ongoing investigation, but right now that's the way that we can tell whether it's counterfeit, if it has that serial number and it has that lot number, Jake. What happens if someone accidentally uses the fake Ozempic, the counterfeit? Yeah, well, the FDA says that so far it's received five adverse events related to these counterfeit uh, products. And the events involved uh, 
symptoms like diarrhea, vomiting, stomach pain. These are side effects that sometimes patients will experience when taking the real authentic Ozempic medications. But the FDA said that while it's investigating this, there's also the risk of how the needles themselves in the counterfeit products are also fake. And so the FDA cannot confirm whether the needles used for these counterfeit Ozempic injections are sterile. So that poses a risk as well. And it's also unknown what exactly is in the counterfeit products. So these could potentially cause a lot of harm. And again, this is something that the FDA is really looking into at the moment. How many Americans are using drugs such as Ozempic? Yeah, well, we know that these drugs are growing in popularity. We know that about 1.7% of Americans are currently prescribed a type of this weight loss or diabetes drug. That share has actually gone up 40-fold in the past five years. So this is growing in popularity. And of course, with more demand, there's more of a risk of these kind of knockoff versions emerging on the market. So this is something that the FDA is closely looking into. And some of these knockoff versions, these counterfeit products could still be available on the market. So that's why it's important to check the lot number, check the serial number. All right, Jacqueline Howard, thanks so much. Appreciate it. It's one of the biggest debates every year, although I think it's settled, frankly. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? We're going to get the definitive answer from my next guest. Stay with us. Walk out of here or be carried out. We have no In our pop culture lead, tis the season for Christmas movies from holiday classics, such as a family vacation that goes terribly wrong when the McAllisters realize they left their son Kevin home alone. That's some crappy parents, by the way. Or all the life lessons young Ralphie Parker learns as he lobbies his parents for the perfect present in A Christmas Story. But since its release in 1988, there has been a hotly contested debate. Is Die Hard really a Christmas movie? And joining me now is Jeremy Arnold. He is the author of Turner Classic Movies, Christmas in the Movies. Jeremy, thank you for being here. And I, and I should disclose, of course, the TCM is part of the Warner Brothers Discovery family, although that's not why I booked you. Why I did will become apparent in just a second. But first, let's start with the, the general theme. How do you define a Christmas movie? Well, the way I define it is any movie of any genre in which the Christmas season plays a meaningful role in the story. So some, some aspects, some emotional truth of the season has to meaningfully inform the story for the audience. So the, the season means different things. It means joy and family togetherness and finding love and compassion and a positive transformation. It can also mean loneliness, uh, cynicism, uh, maybe a disgust with the commercialism of the season. So there's a very wide spectrum of emotion that we tie to the Christmas season which allows for a great variety of movies to become what I would call Christmas movies. You describe, and I do not disagree, um, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life as the ultimate Christmas movie, which and it's actually a pretty dark movie um, when you get down to what actually happens in the alternative uni universe in which George Bailey does not exist. Uh, let's, um, obviously, if, you, if you've made it to 2023 and you haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life, I'm sorry, but here's a little... Here's a little spoiler uh, that I want to run. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. I'm getting shivers just looking at that. So 
I guess the, the question I have for you is, can a Christmas movie, as you define it, can it have a not happy ending? That is a good question up for debate. And there are very few, if any, Chris, there are very few Christmas movies that I consider Christmas movies that have downbeat endings. One of them is a really unusual, obscure film noir from 1961 called Blast of Silence. Another, arguably a Christmas movie, is the James Bond picture on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Lazenby. George Lazenby. I didn't, detect, I didn't have you pegged as a, as a Lazenby file, but okay, keep, keep going. I'm more of a Connery guy, but okay, keep going. I'm a Connery guy, but that's my favorite <laughs> Bond movie. And, really? And, you know, Bond falls in love and proposes marriage on Christmas Eve in a yeah. snowy barn. The holiday has worked into the story. Let's get to the real reason I had you here, which is just the definitive proof. Uh, you have settled the argument. Die Hard is in this. It gets its own chapter. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Uh, I'm glad it is now official. Explain why, in your view, because there are, I don't know what to call them, skeptics. Let's, let's be polite and call yes. them skeptics who say Die Hard's not a Christmas movie. Obviously it is. Explain why. Well, first of all, when people say Die Hard, is not a Christmas movie, and the other side must be insane for thinking it is. What that dispute is really about is definition. Both sides are defining the term Christmas movie very differently. And so for someone, it may really not be a Christmas movie, and that's fine for them, but for the rest of us, it is. And the reason I think it is, um, is that it begins as the most common type of Christmas movie, which is some version of a dysfunctional or estranged family trying to reconcile on Christmas. In this case, John and Holly McLean. Holly, I'd like Holly, to note. Yes. Her name's Holly. Yes, changed from the source material. Right. Her name was Stephanie. Uh, so that is the story that is happening before the terrorists come and take over Nakatomi Plaza. And what that does is it grounds the audience to see the whole movie that follows through the prism of this Christmas time family reconciliation story. And a Christmas miracle, if I There's, may say. Right, there are references to Christmas all throughout the movie, in the dialogue, in the visuals, on the soundtrack, uh, sound effects. Christmas, ho, 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 now I've got a machine gun. Exactly. Christmas, I think, does a lot to lighten the tone of yeah. Die Hard 2. It's a violent movie, but it's not cruel or unpleasantly violent. It's, it's cheerful and joyful, and that connects it to the season, too. Here's just a little clip uh, from the start of the film. John McClane on his way to visit Holly, <clears throat> Holly in Los Angeles for Christmas. The driver, Argyle, asks uh, if he wants to listen to some music. Hey, that'll work. You got any Christmas music? This is Christmas music. So one other point I'd like to make about the Die Hard uh, it being a Christmas movie, and, and honestly, I, I could do two hours just on this topic, is the key moment of the film where John McClane, and again, this movie's been out for a little while, so I'm sorry, but spoiler alert, uh, when, when John McClane saves the day, uh, saves his wife, kills Hans Gruber and another bad guy, he's only able to do because of the presence of presents. There are Christmas presents there, and he uses the tape I'm not going to give more than yes. that away. But obviously, definitionally, this could not have happened, this miracle, any other holiday. Right. It, it, it definitely makes us aware of that connection in that moment. And here's the thing. If Die Hard were set at another time of year, the story could still work. You could still have this story. But what Christmas does, it, it enhances all these emotions and rituals that we recognize as linked to the season 
and intensifies them. It, you know, Christmas does that to the highs and the lows. It's a Wonderful Life is powerful because the despair that Jimmy Stewart feels is so greatly enhanced by the fact that he's feeling it at Christmas time. Yeah. Die Hard, it could work on a day other than Christmas, but it would not be the same movie. Well, if it were Arbor Day, then he wouldn't have had the Christmas tape and then Hollywood <laughs> died. Exactly. That's pretty clear. Um, Jeremy Arnold, um, the book is A Christmas in the Movies. Before you go, what is your favorite Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah. Because it's the ultimate one for the reasons we just talked yeah. about. Yeah, it's yeah. a beautiful film. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being here. Really good to see you. Thank you. Coming up, what a big announcement from the shoe giant Nike might tell us about the economy. It's something to keep in mind as you're out Christmas shopping this weekend. Not to be a Grinch, but in our money lead, despite today's latest signs that inflation is cooling off and prices are falling for the first time in more than three years, Nike, the running shoe company, is acting as though a recession might be lurking around the corner. Nike just slashed its revenue outlook and announced plans to cut spending by $2 billion, with a B, billion dollars over the next three years. That includes layoffs. It seems as though Nike might see customers around the world switching their behavior passing up discretionary purchases such as expensive sneakers, opting instead for the basics. We will see if this trend has legs. Hopefully not. Join me Sunday for an important morning on State of the Union, The World in Crisis. It's a climate special. I'm going to talk to former Vice President Al Gore, billionaire investor Ray Dalio, prominent climate change scientist Catherine Hayhoe, and of course a piece from Bill Weir and our panel. That's this Sunday morning at 9 o'clock Eastern and again at noon, only here on CNN. You can follow me on Facebook, on Instagram, on Threads, on X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts, all two hours just sitting there like a, like a delicious Christmas dish. Our coverage now continues with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Have yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.